May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be found pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my strength, my Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I'm not going to lie. I like to, uh, I, I like to give a good sermon. I hope you guys like that too. And typically part of that means I try to find ways to, to t- catch your attention. And then one of my favorite things is usually, and you probably notice this, catch your attention with a little bit of a story that somehow, and it's purely by magic, I'll tell you, it's great skill, really. I, I, I bring it back at the very end, and the story that you thought had nothing to do with it has everything to do with it. I'm not going to do that today, and I'm going to tell you why. We don't have time. I joke about how, you know, don't worry, it won't be long. I'm only going to preach 45 minutes. Today I'm not joking. I've literally got 45 minutes to an hour's worth of material, and I want to get through it. So I'm not going to, I'll talk fast, don't worry, and I'll probably have to leave a lot of this on the cutting room floor, and that's a bummer, because it's some pretty good stuff, I think. I I was really excited this week, and uh, I just, I couldn't edit. Um, So we're going to get through it, but it, it it really has a lot to do with Herod. Uh, When you read in our gospel lesson, when King Herod heard this, when he heard the Christ child was being born, he was frightened. And then the next line says, and all Jerusalem with him. Everybody was frightened too. When Herod was scared, they were scared. And you kind of got to wonder, now we know the reason. Herod was scared because he had a certain amount of power that he did not want to get rid of. Everybody else was scared because Herod had a certain amount of power that he did not want to get rid of. And they knew what he was willing to do to keep that. So what a line. Herod was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod's a scary guy. He, uh, he didn't care much for his family. He didn't care much for his son. Uh, He planned to leave his throne to his son, but no time soon. In fact, I would believe Herod would likely uh, dispose of his own son if he ever got word that his son was trying to overthrow him. He, He was so concerned with his own power that a baby child being born who will not grow to be an adult before Herod has already died of old age, it's never going to be a problem. He's still afraid of that. He doesn't want to get rid of his power. And the problem here is power corrupts. It does. If it doesn't come from the right source. My power comes from God above. Because we learn that all good things come from God. That he is the source of good and light. And that any true power in this world is his. We don't have it. So when we start relying on ourselves and trusting ourselves for power... I think something inside of us realizes how fragile that is and how we understand the truth that really it's not ours. And we're afraid to get rid of it. There's actually a study done some years ago uh, that mentioned that people in parking spots, if, if somebody is in a parking spot, leaving the parking spot, and they know that somebody else is waiting for that spot, they will on average take 30 seconds to one minute longer to get out of that spot. And it's not like they do it on purpose. It's, it's really subconscious. And, and the, 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 the theory behind that is the reason that is is because we have control over so little in this world, we want to keep whatever control we have, which means this is my parking spot. I'm going to keep it for as long as I can. Don't you dare try to think about taking 
my parking spot. Now imagine if we're not talking parking spot, imagine if we're talking kingdom. The Roman authority has said, I'm in charge of you all. Who is this kid, this child who's going to take me away? I, uh, I think it's interesting that we, we do the best we can to paint Christmas, and this is the second week of Christmas. We are still in Christmas. And if you don't believe me, drive down my street. I'm the only house that still has lights on. Uh, we, we are still in Christmas. My wife, she doesn't get it, but she knows I'm determined. Uh, but either way, we, we paint such a beautiful picture of Christmas. We, we have these pictures of a manger with a beautiful night sky with stars and angels and colorful shepherds and, and all this wonderful stuff going on. And the truth is, Christmas was probably not a pretty picture at all. You really got to think about it. Okay, for one, I have cats. You guys probably know this now. I've, I've become a cat person. My wife and I got cats about six months ago, and they have got me wrapped around their fingers, their paws, whatever they want. I am a sucker for those guys now. I love them so much that I am willing to clean their litter box twice a day. But when the door is open... And I think there's a chance that they might get out of the house. I get scared. I get really nervous. And I will quickly close the door and then walk around the house panicking, making sure the cats are still inside. Because if they get out of the house, who knows what might actually happen to them. And that just scares the tar out of me. Now, here's what I realized. If I am that afraid of my cats getting out of the house because something might happen to them, what is going to happen the day that I become a father. What's going to happen when I have a kid? I'm going to put him in a cage. <laughs> you don't go out. No. You're getting in a cage and you are staying there until I die first. Because that's the only way I'm going to feel comfortable with you doing this. But here's the thing. How much love would a child have for their father if that child was kept in a cage? We can't do that. If we love somebody, we have to let them go. We have to let them make choices, even if they might be bad, even if they might be painful, even if they might hurt. And because of that, we risk them walking away from us. We risk them running away from us. And that's, that's scary. Christmas Eve... Uh, really, if you go back before then, first of all, you have a girl. She's 12, by the way, 12 years old. And she's pregnant. Has no idea where or why or how that happened. I imagine a 12-year-old who does know how that happened would be scared. Uh, let's take it that next step for one who doesn't. Doesn't know how that happened, completely scared. And now, 12-year-old girl has got to tell her betrothed husband-to-be about this. Which means she very likely might get stoned to death. But she doesn't. This is scary. This is not pretty picture. Her husband decides, I'm going to be her husband-to-be. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to let her go about her way. But then he gets a vision, and the vision says, no, you're going to be here to raise this child too. So now you have a man with a 12-year-old wife who's pregnant. None of them know how it is. And on top of this, they've got to start to travel. There's a census being done in Jerusalem, uh, in Bethlehem, not Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, and they have to go there. Now, here's the deal. I live in the year, what is 2020? I typed it this morning. It's true. It's 2020. It's scary to think about that. But in the year 2020, if I had a friend who was pregnant and they were traveling this late in their pregnancy, I would be so nervous, 
flipping out, freaked out. I would call them, text them, want to make sure they're okay. I'd encourage everything I could for them not to travel. Whatever you do, don't travel. Now, if it was my wife who was pregnant, I'm going to put her in a cage. I can't risk this. So here they are, not in the year 2020, not in an air-conditioned automobile, but traveling on the back of animals across a desert to get to Jerusalem because of the census. This has got to be a scary time. And then when they get to Jerusalem, they find that it is packed. There's nowhere to stay. So they go to a small town just a little bit south, Bethlehem. And when they get there, there's nowhere to stay. So they stay in a manger, which we've all seen the pictures. They're beautiful. They're, they're shiny. They're wonderful. The manger is great. Let me tell you this. A manger is a place where you house animals. I clean a litter box for two cats. And that is not a pretty picture. I can only imagine the filth of a manger. And then to make it better, they get visitors, shepherds. These weren't gentlemen wearing bright colors who shaved that morning and brushed their teeth twice a day. These were men who lived out in the fields taking care of their sheep, of their flocks. These men were smelly, they were disgusting, they were gross, they were lowly, they were hard-worn, they had, were callous. These were not pretty men in a filthy manger on a dark night in the desert after traveling across a desert. This, this is how God-made man comes into the world. So the next thing that happens is they have the baby and, and rejoice and all is great. And these wise men uh, come and they, they make their way there. And as they're making their way there, now these are guys from the east. They're not Israeli. They're not Hebrew. They do not know what's going on. What they know is a star has shown up. And we're going to go find out what happened with this star. And they know that there are prophecies about when a star shows up. It's because somebody is being born. So they want to go find out who's being born. And they go to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they start asking, we see this star. What does it mean? And people tell them, well, we have this prophecy of a Messiah to come, a king to come. So they, in doing this, catch Herod's attention because he doesn't want to lose his power. And he calls them in and he says, wise men, find out where this baby is and then come and let me know so I can pay homage to him too. Now we know what that homage looks like. The wise men want to give him gifts. They want to bow down. They want to treat him as a king. Herod does not. The homage he wants to pay is he wants to end him, to destroy him, to take him out of this world so that he could hold on to his own power. Now imagine what it would be like if you were a new mom, a new dad, traveled across the desert, living uh, temporarily in a filthy manger with shepherds, and an angel shows up and tells you this, run, because if you stay where you are, the authority is going to come and kill your child. Run. Get out of town. Go to Egypt. This was a very scary picture. And this is how Christ, God made man, comes into the world. Not born in a golden crib in a mansion, not fed the best food, not in a palace somewhere, but in a lowly manger. This is how God comes into the world. It makes no sense. Or does it? So our, our gospel lesson kind of ends with that. Our gospel lesson ends 
with uh, the wise men getting a vision saying, don't go back to Herod. Now, they might not know why. Maybe they do. They are called wise men. Hopefully, they've got to figure it out. But they don't go back to Herod. And then we don't get to this in our gospel, but I'm going to read on. It says, now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That's powerful language, to destroy this baby. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night. It says it right there. They went by night. That's not just, oh, it happened to be 4.20 in the afternoon. It happened to be 3 o'clock in the morning. They went by night. It says that specifically because they want you to know these guys are hightailing it out of there and they are sneaking away because of the danger they are under. They went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, when he, he's talking about the prophet here, he says, uh, this is to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And what the prophet said is, out of Egypt, I called my son. The prophet for that is... is uh, Sorry, my brain died. It happens when you have a bunch. It's Hosea. Um, here's, whenever I'm reading the New Testament and I see something that says, as was written in Scripture or as was said by the prophet, the first thing I do is I go to my Bible on my computer and I copy and paste that into Google. And I hit enter because I want to find out where in the Old Testament is that written. So when I looked at this, I saw, out of, as the prophet said, out of Egypt I have called my son. So I copied that, pasted that, stuck it into Google, hit search, and Pastor Google came back and told me, Hosea chapter 11. And this is what is said in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the balls. They offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. But they did not know that I healed them. So Hosea, 800 years before Jesus, it seems like he might be predicting Jesus, he might be saying, this is what's going to happen because it sounds a lot like what's happening to Jesus. But Isaiah or Hosea is actually not doing that. What he's actually doing is he's pointing to the past. Can you think of any other time where there was uh, Israeli Hebrew people in Egypt and a prophecy of a young child being born who's going to challenge the authority of a mad king who is so desperate to not be challenged that he is willing to kill innocent children. Can you think of any other time that happened in the history of Israel, of the Hebrew people? Absolutely. Moses and Pharaoh. So Hosea is actually pointing back to saying this, this which is one of the worst times in the history of our people, when we were sold into slavery, when we were building and dying for the Egyptians and getting nothing from this, so much so to the point where they have full authority to kill our children. Hosea is pointing back to this, this time. And when he says, uh, when Israel was a child, listen to this language, when Israel, the nation of his people was a child, 
I loved him. When this nation was young, I loved him like they were my son. This nation is God's child. And if you put a child in a cage, it will not love you. So he sets them free. He says, you have a choice that you can make here. And they choose to sacrifice to idols and not love him. They, they run from him. And then Matthew shares with us, hey, don't forget this scripture. Because just like Moses came out of Egypt, just like the people of Israel came out of Egypt, how they were saved from this, what's happening in Egypt, they're going to be saved again by this other son that is coming out of Egypt. If I continue on into Matthew 2, the next thing, chapter, uh, verse 16 says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Uh, if we were to do a survey, uh, a census of the number of people that were in Jerusalem and Bethlehem at the time, what this would probably equate to is roughly 25 to 50 boys being killed. 25 to 50 infants to two-year-olds in one night. King Herod had the opportunity, and he took it. And this, this is what the parents of Christ are running from. This was fulfilled, then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they are no more. So now Matthew has quoted a second prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was around 600 years before Christ. And Jeremiah, if, if, if Hosea is talking about one of the greatest tragedies of the Hebrew people, of their captivity in Egypt, then Jeremiah absolutely lived a life during the absolute worst traumatic event that ever happened to the Hebrew people. Living in Jerusalem, the armies of Babylon showed up, sieged their city for a year, finally were able to get into the city, burnt the city, burnt the temple, the house of God to the ground, killed numerous, multiple people, women and children. And then the ones they didn't kill, they then took away to a small town just south of Jerusalem called Ramah. And in Ramah, they put them into a caravan and led them across a desert a thousand miles to Babylon to be in captivity. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. Her children, the people of Israel, were killed and sold into slavery. This is terrible. When Herod died, here's some good news. An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up. You know, side note, we're all part of God's creation. Do you know what that means? 
That means Herod was God's creation too. Herod was God's child too. Herod had a choice too. Because even with what he did, God loved him. Strange. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So now we've got the mad titan's son. He was afraid to go there. After being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth. So that what had been spoken through the prophets, now I want you to hear this, we've already quoted the prophet Hosea, we've already quoted the prophet Jeremiah, that one was very easy to Google search because it said right there the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, now we have the prophets, it's plural, what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. So I copied and I pasted and I put that into Pastor Google. And I hit enter. You know what I find out? You know where that is in the Old Testament? That Jesus will be called a Nazarene? That he will be from Nazareth? It's not. It's not in the Old Testament. That, those words are not written there. Which means uh, clearly the Bible must be flawed and we can all just go home now. Matthew is far more clever than that. Matthew is what I would call a Bible nerd. He knows his scripture. And when he is pointing to this, he knows his audience knows their scripture too. Uh, check this out. This is a word play and really quite a great one. In Isaiah, who is kind of the prophet of prophets, who was around before Hosea, around before Jeremiah, and many of the other prophets simulated him. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, he says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. A shoot will come up from a stump of Jesse, and from his roots, a branch will come, and this branch will bear fruit. Now, Isaiah says this, and Isaiah is saying this, saying that God is going to send somebody who's going to bear fruit. And that kind of becomes an analogy for the Messiah. When Isaiah says a branch what he is really saying is the Messiah. So every time after this, when he says a branch, he means the Messiah. So Hosea picks up on that. Oh, Isaiah's talking about a branch. He's talking about the Messiah. So I'm going to refer to the Messiah as the branch of Jesse. And then Jeremiah picks that up. Okay, I'm going to refer to. So all the prophets have picked up on this analogy of Jesus being a branch from the root of Jesse that will bear fruit. What's that have to do with Nazareth? The Hebrew and Greek word, Nazar, means branch. Nazareth means branch town. So he's basically saying this town, the word, the name of this town is the branch. It's a cute little wordplay there. Now we, uh, another translation for it instead of branch is this, stick or sticks. And we kind of have a term in our own uh, society for the sticks. When somebody is from the sticks, are you expecting somebody great to come out of the sticks? Are you expecting somebody great to come out of the ghetto, out of the swamp, out of the far away podunk small town? 
Do you know how many celebrities have come out of Palatka, Florida? There's been at least one. We had a, I'm from Apopka. And in Apopka, uh, there is one country singer who had basically one hit 20, 30 years ago. And we're still so very proud of that one guy with his one song. Because nobody comes out of Apopka. Apopka is seminal for big potato. Nobody comes out of the sticks. And Matthew was saying, as the prophets said, the prophets said, the branch, the Messiah is going to be a Nazarene. He's going to be a branch. He's going to be from Nazareth. He's going to be from the sticks. And why is that important? Because, hear this, Jesus was not born in a golden crib. He was not born in a clean facility. He was not born in a palace. The Son of God, God made flesh, came to this earth, and this is how he did it. In the sticks. With his parents. Scared to death the entire time, knowing their son was in danger. Isaiah goes on to say this in chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom other, others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities, and carried our diseases. He's felt what we have felt. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. Here's the deal. There is a lie that is out there. We grieve. We suffer. The human condition is one of pain. It is one of deceit. It is one of corruption. And when we see pain and suffering, we typically come up with one or two uh, reasons for that. And the reasons are, are along the lines of this. There's so much pain and suffering, there must not be a God. Because no God who is good would allow this. Or we say, okay, there is a God. But he either does not care about us. Or he's vindictive. Matthew gives us a third option. Matthew says there is a God and he does love you. And here's the thing. He's not surprised by the pain and the suffering and the corruption. He wasn't caught off guard by Herod. He knew what Herod was going to do. He sent an angel to warn people many times. God wasn't surprised by the suffering. But that doesn't mean that he ordained it either, that he said, yes, this is what's going to happen. You see, the reason that 25 to 50 children died in Bethlehem that night was because God gave Herod 
his creation a choice. He didn't put him in a cage. You can choose to follow me or not. And it's risky because if I give you that freedom, I'm giving you the freedom to walk away from me. I'm giving you the freedom to run away from me. But if I put you in a cage, you're not going to love me. So this is what we get. Now what we learn through Matthew and through these, these scriptures, through these prophets, we go back to uh, the slavery of Egypt and escaping from that. We go back to their captivity from Babylon and being sold into slavery again a thousand miles away and their return from that. And then we go into this, the birth of Christ, the branch, and a lowly, dirty, scum-filled manger surrounded by disgusting people, scared for their life, scared in a way that I hope none of us ever know that fear. What we get from Matthew is we get a God who's given us the freedom to cause suffering and pain, which we do. And he has experienced it with us. The lie that is out there that, that so many people will tell you, and I don't know why they tell you this. I don't know if they're trying to fill their seats or get more money in the church or get more people or feel more powerful themselves. I, I don't know why they tell you this, but the lie that they're going to tell you is this. When you accept Christ into your life, when you decide to be a follower of Jesus, everything's going to get better. Everything's going to be good. That's so not true. It's not going to get better. We're still going to suffer. We're still going to have pain. And when you tell people that following Christ is going to make your life better, all you're doing is setting them up for the fall when their life doesn't get better, and then they blame God for it. Following Jesus is not going to make your life have less suffering. It's not going to make your life have less pain. But here's what we learn. We learn that our God did not come to stay far away from our suffering. He came to experience it with us. So when we pray to God, when we worship God, it's not so much God. If you were any good, you wouldn't let this happen. It's more along the lines of God. You are so good, you gave me the choice to walk away from you. And then when that caused you pain like a father, as we are his children, when that caused you pain to watch me walk away from you, you came and suffered with me. You came and felt that pain with me of what it's like to experience the human condition. And you suffered in a way that I will never know. Our faith is not one of perfection in the sense of everything will be better in this lifetime. But we have a God who suffered with us. Who holds our hands and knows what it is to feel pain. And he has a redemptive plan for us. Our faith is not that when we accept Christ everything gets better. Our faith is that when we accept Christ, we continue to suffer, but we do it for Him. And we have Him helping us through it because He knows what it feels like. And as we walk through the pain and suffering, it's knowing 
that it will not last. That he has a plan. That redemption is coming. That resurrection is coming. And that all the suffering of this world will not, cannot compare to the riches of the next if we follow him. Let that be our prayer this new year. That we recognize our Lord, our God, for who He is. A, a Father who loves us enough to give us a choice. A Father who loves us enough to weep, to grieve over us when we walk away from Him, when we run away from Him. And a Father who loves us enough to stand in our place and suffer with us, suffer for us. So that we can be with Him. So that we will know we're not alone. Let this be our understanding and our prayer this year. <coughs> that we follow Him. And that like He has been for us. We learn how to love people who are suffering. We learn how to love people who need love, whether we agree with them or not. And that we learn how to be a follower of Christ and how to reflect his light into this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.